Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, May 22nd, we have another housing package, Liam. Another one? That's great to hear. (laughs) Your enthusiasm is bountiful. It's infectious, I'm sure. So earlier this week, even amidst a pandemic that has altered every aspect of everyone's life, Senate Democrats in the state legislature unveiled bills aimed at building more homes in California. Pandemic or not, we know that's been an endemic problem in California. I see that David there with little word stuff. Nice. I guess this one aims at root causes of the state's housing problems. So we'll be breaking down what's actually in this housing package, also through the lens of what could have been possibly with Senate Bill 50. We'll also talk about how COVID has changed the art of the possible here and some practical advice in kind of a new segment. You want to talk about that, Liam? Yeah, this is some news you can use. So by the time you hear this podcast, most likely we'll have published a story, not only taking a look at a apartment complex in LA called Park La Brea, which it turns out is the largest apartment complex west of the Mississippi River. But as part of that story, a sidebar we're publishing on as a tenant, if you or your neighbors come down with the coronavirus, what you need to do. I am eager to learn. It is directly applicable to my situation. That's why I'm here, Matt. We will also be talking about the state budget, or I guess what's left of it, and how that is impacting the housing space. But first, we want to give an update on the Liam Dillon. Calling it the the giveaway. Giveaway implies that everyone gets something. It's like, Oprah, there's a BMW under your chair. Maybe a contest for a giveaway. Maybe sweepstakes is probably... Yeah, I think sweepstakes is a, is a more appropriate term. Yeah, too many characters, though, for Twitter, unfortunately. So we, we're stuck with giveaway. Yet another example of how Twitter influences your day-to-day life. Uh, but what's going on with it? Hardcore listeners of Gimme Shelter know that last time we were here, uh, I announced that I was going to be putting forward a contest for people if they were going to subscribe to the LA Times. And it's been going great so far. I am, in fact, giving away postcards of a art exhibit that I saw a number of years ago. It has a street sign that says unaffordable housing on it. And, uh, Matt Levin is a proud owner of one of the postcards given to him as a gift many years ago because we're very close. <laughs> but now you, you as a listener to Give Me Shelter, can be an owner of a postcard yourself. And how? And all you have to do is subscribe to the LA Times, tweet your proof or email it to me, and there you go. Once I get to 25 new subscribers, and we're already doing pretty well, you're at 17 as of this moment, then I will pick three winners and they'll uh, they'll get the postcards. We are going to level up these sweepstakes. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's hear about it, Matt. So if you subscribe to the LA Times and you donate to Cal Matters or surreptitiously drop off a briefcase full of unmarked bills at my door, it doesn't have to go through Cal Matters. But preferably if you donate to Cal Matters and subscribe to the LA Times, you will also be entered in the sweepstakes to appear on the show introducing the avocado of the year. Liam, for the less hardcore listeners of Gimme Shelter, what is the avocado of the year? I mean, a mind-blowing gift, first of all. Opportunity of a lifetime. 
the avocado of the Fortnite, as folks know, is a sort of the most absurd housing story in California over the previous two weeks. And the mm-hmm. avocado of the year is the absurd of the absurd, the most absurd that you could ever possibly consider every single year. So this past year, for instance, the avocado of the year was a church in San Diego that could not build an affordable housing complex in their parking lot because of city regulations that had required them to build enough parking spots based on the square footage of pew space. Parking per pew. Alliterative and absurd. So if you subscribe, as Matt says, subscribe to the LA Times, donate to Count Matters, tell us during this sweepstakes period, then you'll be entered into this drawing to announce yourself the avocado of the year, which is a real, a real treat. For those that have already subscribed to the LA Times and were not aware of this additional sweepstakes, you are already entered in this. Just yeah, just worry. to clarify, don't worry about it. You will be in the running to appear on the show as well, although I still strongly encourage you to donate to Cal Matters. Yeah, if you like this podcast going, there's two of us and you should support it if you can. And what's the best way to prove that they've subscribed and donated to Cal Matters, Liam? Screenshot of their donation. Yeah, that'd be good. Just email us. Our, our email addresses are on our respective websites. All right. Speaking of. Yes. Let's go to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is. The avocado of the fortnight. The most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. And this avocado takes us to the foul-infested waters of Lake Merritt, or at least somewhere close to the foul-infested waters of Lake Merritt in Oakland. See what I did? Yes, I I did. It will become apparent shortly. (laughs) And thank you to uh, Ziamora Cisneros, who flagged this for us on Twitter. Gerald the turkey is, in fact, what the San Francisco Chronicle called a NIMBY turkey in a rose garden in Oakland and has been not practicing social distancing during this time. In fact, he has been aggressively approaching visitors, (laughs) disrupting their picnics, and frightening children. Quote, It was traumatic, said Gene Silver, 76, a retired Oakland church administrator. All of a sudden, it attacked me. It happened so fast. He got me with his talons and his wings. I didn't know Turkey did things like that. You know what the irony here is? Aggressively approaching visitors, disrupting their meals, and frightening children is like my family's Thanksgiving. Also, there's a version of this story where Gerald the turkey is actually the hero. So this rose garden, the the Morecambe Rose Garden in Oakland, is actually closed due to coronavirus concerns. And so all these people out there in this in this rose garden, Gerald's really acting on behalf of their safety. So Gerald the NIMBY turkey in this case is actually Gerald coronavirus hero turkey. And we should all applaud Gerald for his behavior. You know, this isn't a housing story per se, really in any way. (laughs) But I, I will say it does show you how the term NIMBY editors are trying to get the term NIMBY, I think, into any headline they can possibly sneak it in. It is interesting that Gerald branded uh, pejoratively as a NIMBY when, again, I, I think he's really a hero. Speaking of NIMBYs, I once saw a group of wild turkeys. There must have been like three or four. They were heading to one of the openings in the Capitol. Like they looked like they were about to like make public comment. It was amazing. <laughs> I couldn't see whether they were actually going inside to testify on a bill or not. But yeah. Anything else about Gerald the turkey? I applaud what he's trying to do. It makes sense to me, man. Uh, Now for the creatively titled News You Can Use, copyright pending. Let's do this as a QA and a because I live in an apartment complex, and I would like to know what I should and should not be doing. 
this is a good role reversal because as a journalist, typically I'm the one asking the questions. Okay, let's start here. How should I interact with my neighbors? This is actually a kind of curb your enthusiasm moment for me. I see someone, it's a neighbor, I know their name, I don't want to be rude. I need to stop and say hi just in case I need them to like tend to a plant or something when I'm on vacation next year. Yeah. But also I don't want to get too close. What's the appropriate protocol here? This sounds kind of harsh, but like you should just act like everyone in your complex has the virus anyway. Because that's the kind of thing that will keep you safe, whether or not someone actually does have the virus. So that means wear masks while you're in common areas, wash your hands, and in like heavily trafficked places like your elevators and your lobbies, just limit what you touch. I talked with a, an expert at USC's medical school, Paula Cannon, and what she told me, what would you do different if you knew someone in your apartment complex had the coronavirus? You'd say, well, I just wouldn't touch the elevator button. Well, her point is, why don't you just not touch the elevator button and then you can move on? And another thing you can do is if you're friendly with people in your complex is like talk about a plan before anyone were to get sick. So that takes some of the stress out of it. That way, if there are people who are comfortable, you know, you know that you're sick and you know your neighbor, then you can get them chicken soup for them if they need it and leave it outside their door. Or if not, you can just say, all right, great, I'll see you in two weeks. And so that's the kind of stuff you can do, kind of make a plan, because the same things you do to prevent yourself from getting the virus work just as well if someone actually has it. And so that should be your mindset. What about wiping down common surfaces? So I have a gate yeah. That multiple people open and close. Do I have to be the one that uses my precious Clorox wipes to disinfect the gate? I mean, your landlord should do that. Oh, that's not happening. Or the landlord necessarily doing that. It would be nice, maybe. And again, this is something I got into with the folks in, I spoke with for the story. You know, if they left out some cleaning supplies. And in fact, that is a better way for a landlord to handle things than say, like, putting up a note if someone gets infected. What does that even do? In fact, that could lead to some panic. Also, there are real concerns that have been raised that are legitimate about privacy and about stigmatization of people with the disease, racism mm-hmm. as well. And so, you know, the better way for a landlord to handle this is, according to the experts that I spoke with, put some cleaning supplies out. And that will, again, will do a much better job of keeping your tenants and your buildings safe without some potential negative consequences. So. Can I just ask you this? If I was in a single family home, would I have to take any of these precautions? I mean, it depends on who you're living with. I mean, you're living with people, then sure you do. I mean, again, I, and I think kind of the master idea here is there's no inherent risk in living in an apartment complex. The issue is if you've been in contact with people, whether or not you live in an apartment complex, then those are the ones that need to know if you get sick or they're mm-hmm. the ones who should tell you if they get sick. If the guy across the hallway from you, you you never talk to him and you never hang out with him and you haven't crossed paths with him and you haven't spent time with him, you don't need to tell him. So it's really about your contacts and not about your neighbors. Okay. Well, I feel more educated and comfortable. And even despite the new CDC guidelines, I'm not going to lick every surface in my apartment building anymore. It's a good idea. I'm going to stay away from that for once. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's move on to what has been a pretty crazy week in the state legislature. Well, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, right? Because we're starting with the governor put out a revised budget that, you know, was really devastating from a financial perspective from the money that would be available, right? So what were we looking at coming in? We were looking at a $54 billion deficit. That's coming from the Newsom administration, and different people have different estimates based off a few different things. But 
just think of it as there's a huge, huge hole in the state budget, and it needs to be patched together. And that's, if not the biggest, one of the biggest holes that the state has ever faced. But the state is better equipped to handle it this time as opposed to what happened in the aftermath of the Great Recession or even the dot-com bust, which has important implications for housing. To that point, you know, during those previous times, at least I know for sure, during the last budget crisis at the Capitol, you know, housing was one of the big first things to go in terms of housing money. And so that's always a target. You know, how is it faring or how did it fare in what the governor proposed? Everyone was bracing for something really rough, especially homelessness and low-income housing advocates. There was definite fear that there was going to be a repeat of some of what we saw during previous downturns. But overall, considering the depth of that deficit hole, housing and homelessness did not fare all that bad. It really didn't. Yeah, so what's still in, what's in there? Probably the most notable investment is $750 million towards buying those hotels and motels that are currently housing or at least have rooms available for people experiencing homelessness during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. If you go back to January, Newsom proposed $750 million in a new state fund that would go to all types of homelessness services. That was all state money. People were wondering, well, obviously the state has less money now. Is that going to be there? And if so, how much was going to be there? Luckily, The federal government, because of the CARES Act, the stimulus they passed after the pandemic struck, gave the state government some flexibility in how they can spend billions, basically, that California received. Newsom saying, I want to put $750 million of that towards buying these hotels and motels. Okay. So not that bad. You're going to see debate from low-income housing and homelessness advocates that want that $750 million to be used for something besides hotels and motel purchases, putting it towards permanent supportive housing or putting it towards operating some of these hotels and motels. The important thing to know is that that money, because it's federal money, has to be out the door by December. Mm -hmm. It's not kind of like an ongoing source of funds that homelessness service providers can rely on. That's why the Newsom administration wants to just buy these motels. It represents a doubling down of this strategy, which some in the legislature are not so enamored with. But that money's still there. Other money's still there, $500 million for the low-income housing tax credit, which is a program that We've talked about repeatedly in the past the lifeblood of low-income housing in California. Advocates thought that that proposal, which Newsom unveiled in January, that might be threatened by the deficit. That's still there. Yeah. It's still there. And that's a significant amount of money. Again, the money goes towards building new low-income housing. That's right. So what was tossed? So over $500 million in a collection of programs, about half of that is money that was approved last year to go to mixed income developments. The other half, roughly, was a grants for cities and developers to build up infrastructure that would accompany new housing. Some of that money hadn't been spent yet, yeah. and so they just clawed it back and say, eh, let's just keep that in the general fund yeah. for now to pay for anything that we need to pay for. Right. That's a cut, and that shouldn't be, you know... Minimized. Exactly. But in the grand scheme of things, housing did decently well. Newsom had a list of programs that were going to be cut, totaling about $15 billion if the state did not get additional federal relief. 
no significant housing program was in that list of trigger cuts. I don't see how you interpret it as anything but a victory for low-income housing and, and homelessness in this type of budget environment. Except one thing we've been talking about, writing about a lot, is the difficulties that renters have to pay their rent right now and landlords have to pay their mortgages right now. Yes. Is there anything about that? You know, we again, cancel rent. Hashtag. Huge uh, stimulus for that. Anything about that in the proposal? So short answer, no. Yeah. Slightly longer answer. There is some money that came ironically from a lawsuit filed against the big banks in the wake of the Great Recession, about 300 million, a little more. That's going to some help with homeowner foreclosures and then some help for legal aid for renters. But nothing on the scale what the level of the need may be when this is all over. Yeah, and that money is actually legally prohibited from being spent on rental assistance. Advocates were expecting some proposal from the administration on that. They didn't see it in this budget, but they did see it somewhere else. Where is that? That was in the Senate housing package. Okay. Oh, man. What a great segue. Mm -hmm. This announcement actually predated this Senate housing package. It is one of the elements in it. So this is a proposal from Senate Pro Tem, Tony Atkins, Democrat from San Diego, leader of the state Senate, to help renters and landlords struggling with missed rents. The proposal is, okay, renters, if you can prove that you have suffered financial harm because of COVID-19, your missed rent payments will give you 10 years to pay them back starting in 2024. So you don't have to immediately pay them back. Okay. If you're still experiencing financial hardship, then we might forgive the rent payments entirely, or at least a portion of them. When we say we, we mean the state. You won't be signing those rent checks to the landlords. You'll be signing them to the state. So the question is, all right, well, if the money is going back to the state and not until 2024 at the earliest, what happens to the landlords? Do they just eat it? And the state says, no, we're going to give you tax credits. And the landlords say, tax credits? Okay, how do I use a tax credit to pay my mortgage bill? Because that's what I use the rent for or to pay for any other expenses I have. And the state says you can sell those tax credits and that'll free up some cash to pay your bills now if you want to. Or you can hold the tax credits and you won't have to pay very much in taxes in later years. So that is the proposal that Atkins and a team of Senate Democrats have come up with to help renters and landlords. So. Uh, on the one hand, it's pretty creative in the sense that I haven't heard anything like this coming out of other places. And it, I guess it tries to lessen the budget impact to the state compared to, say, simply a direct subsidy or saying no more rent or no more mortgages. But it also sounds really complicated. How would it be administered? Are these tax credits even going to be worth anything? Is it not weird as a renter? to pay April 2020 rent in April 2033. What are some of the concerns that you're hearing about something like this? What you just brought up. It's a broader concern that there hasn't really been a program like this in the past. And is it going to be workable both for tenants and for landlords? I mean, landlords primarily are concerned with, okay, I mean, I, great, I get a tax credit, but if I sell it in a market that's flooded with tax credits and there's reduced demand for tax credits because entities have less income than they used to. Right. Am I going to get pennies on the dollar for the tax credit as opposed to what I would have gotten by going after my tenant in rent for the missed rent? So yeah. that, that's the landlord's primary concern. For tenants, it's, well, can my landlord still evict me? 
Well, and also, I owe money to the state. This is the state going to come after me? Are they going to garnish my wages? I mean, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also sorts of things about being a debtor to the state that might be concerning as well. That's right. And I think a lot of these questions remain unanswered, especially on what would actually qualify renters for forgiveness. Yeah. Because there is no bill language yet. We're literally operating basically off of a PowerPoint presentation that Atkins gave to reporters and staff. So we haven't seen a ton in terms of super specific proposal. I will say, like, there aren't a ton of good options here. The attempt here is trying, I think, to minimize harm on three parties, renters, landlords, and state coffers. At least it's trying. You know, we'll we'll see how the details actually play out. Yeah. But it's an interesting proposal at the least. So this is one part of a number of legislation that Atkins endorsed over this past week that she's now terming a package of of housing bills, which is what was promised, right? After the failure of SB 50, the bill that would have upzoned significant parts of California and single family neighborhoods and near transit, she that failed in her chamber and she promised a response. And so that's what this is, right? Yes, that is. When SB 50 failed, which she supported, she was trying to get senators to vote for after it died for the second time in two days and third time in three years, she stood on the floor of the Senate and said, I will, this is my Tony Atkins impression. Okay. I will pass a housing production bill this year. You Wasn't sound, that, I nailed it, You right? sound just like her, yeah. Got that little bit of a Southern twang in there. <laughs> so yeah, so this was her delivering on that promise and also a commitment from the governor, although he has not expressly supported this package of legislation. Right to make 2020 the year of housing production. Mm -hmm. This is what they came up with. So we got coronavirus-related renter thing, but what else is in this plan? So it's six proposals, including the renter-landlord thing. We're not going to go through each individual bill. We'll point out some highlights from these. The biggest one is the official and visible elimination of single-family-only zoning throughout California. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, yes, to all the listeners out there, both you and I realize that technically single-family-only zoning ceased to exist because of um, accessory dwelling unit legislation passed in 2019. See, that's Casita, though, and the EATS is there for a reason. It's I argue that's not really the end of single-family zoning. But anyway, go ahead. But this piece of legislation, which is borrowed from SB 50, would allow for duplexes across the state, regardless of the size of the city they're in. So from Marin County to downtown LA to Oakland to Fresno, Mm -hmm. a single family home where previously the city said it was illegal to make it into a denser unit could be turned into a duplex and a duplex by right. Real quick, what is by right? Uh, Without any, the city saying can't do it. Yes, it's a typically quicker and cheaper process to get it approved. It's a big deal. Oregon and Minneapolis had similar laws. They made national headlines. We'll get into this more. It is not the type of kind of transformational density, I think, that people anticipated when they were pushing for SB 50, let's say, but it's notable. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a big deal. And then there's another provision, right, which I guess you could, in some places, turn it, if your lot's big enough, you could actually do a fourplex, not just a duplex. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It depends on the size of the lot. It's conceivably fourplex by right yeah. across the state. Okay. Yeah. So that's the big headline. What else are we talking about? So there's another bill that tries to incentivize conversions of retail real estate into housing. 
the pandemic took a lot of things off the table when it came to housing. And we'll yeah. talk about that more later. But this is actually something that the pandemic might have put on the table in a more visible way. Yeah. There are lots of big box retailers and office parks and businesses with lots of valuable property right now across California suffering. Right. And people are unclear how and when those businesses are going to come back. That might be an opportunity for residential builders to snatch up that land mm -hmm. and to build housing. There's always been this conflict between land devoted for retail and land devoted for housing. And the pandemic may have shifted things where housing now has kind of the upper hand in a couple different ways. What the bill does is basically it opens up some of these retail locations to housing to be built on in the first place. Yeah. And then it would also allow for, again, some buy right construction, a shorter process to build housing if a development meets a bunch of different characteristics, including having a significant amount of low-income housing right. in the project. But some severe restrictions. It's not like a developer could walk, walk into a mall and say, houses now. They can't, not going to be able to do that if this bill passes. You can only access the buy right portion of this if the mall or whatever type of retail outlet is there is kind of declining or uninhabited mostly. So if the Best Buy is still in business and you want to buy the Best Buy to build more housing because the land value on it's cheaper, this is going to help you maybe a little bit, but it's not going to make it a snap of the fingers. Right. But if all that's left is an old Radio Shack, then you might, you might, there be, you you might be in good in, uh, in business. That's right. A Radio right. Shack that's been there since like 2003. Exactly. All right. And what else we got? There's an enhancement to what's called the state density bonus program. The basic concept of this is a developer gets to build higher and more densely than he or she is typically allowed if they include a certain percentage of low-income units. This is a bill from Senator Nancy Skinner. The big take-home here is they're trying to boost more uh, missing middle moderate income units with the density bonus program. So you get to build higher or you get some other type of concession from local governments in your project. If you include more units that are affordable to people in the 80 to 120% of area media income range. Okay. And then there are some, I will call them golden state warrior bills or one golden state warrior bill. So right. what am I referring to here? Yeah, so there's this long talking point at the Capitol that, you know, ah, oh, we make it easier. The California Environment Quality Act is a process by which developers have to go through to sort of delineate the impacts that their project will have on the environment. And it is also a lengthy process ripe for litigation. So it's a frequent boogeyman among developers and others who are interested in building stuff. And so during the last recession, there was an effort to make it easier for, you know, mega projects and principally sports stadiums to get built without having to deal with sequa as much and since then though there's been this talking point that ah we make it so much easier to build sports stadiums how do we do that and not housing and so here's a bill now that aims to give the same benefits that stadiums get to housing developments but does it and so like i have been this long rant about this thing for forever really and i have the stories to back it up but basically it doesn't change anything about the sequa process all it does is it tells the courts hey you really should wrap up these lawsuits in nine months. And the courts, the legislature can't tell the courts what to do. And so, you know, there's a number of cases where that timeline has been blown through. You know, yeah, maybe these cases will go through the court system quicker. Although if you have a lot of them, then probably not. 
but it doesn't actually provide any relief under the law itself. You know, while these this is a popular talking point at the Capitol, while this has been an idea that's been on the books for a long time, that political candidates and the governor himself and gubernatorial candidates bring up all the time, you know, substantively, I'm not sure how much uh, how much there is there. We should say there are a couple other provisions in the bill that Liam is referencing that do deal with other aspects of CEQA, but this is kind of the the take home and especially how it was marketed to reporters is the the same exemptions that we're providing stadiums we are finally going to provide to housing of a certain size. Yes. So why did I reference the Warriors? Because I think that's case in point. Right. So the Golden State Warriors used this process to get their arena built in San Francisco. And yeah, almost certainly the lawsuit was quicker than it would have been, but it still took longer than than nine months. And so the rules that are laid out in this in this process don't really work. So that's a very high level overview of the big ticket items in this Senate housing package. Let's talk about how big of a deal this actually is. I can sense, I think, from how you talked about at least the last bill, what your take might be. Let's do it in a classic gimme shelter gimmick here. Let's put it on the spectrum, a true or false statement, false, mostly false, mostly true, true. Sure, okay, okay. This housing package is a very big deal. Three, two, one, and then we'll both say it. Okay, three, two, one. Mostly Mostly true. Boom. All right. So make the case. Yeah. So mostly because of this, there was all this talk in 2017. Oh, it's a housing package. And, and you know, from a regulatory perspective, what's being proposed here is significantly goes significantly further than what um, what was proposed back then and what actually passed back then. Right. Yeah. And so it is the most significant thing that's been put forward that has actual blessing and oomph, if you will, from leadership that we've seen in recent memory, right? In a long time. This is very smart of you because you are destroying my argument by (laughs) making it right now. Because I'll just finish what you're gonna say. But will this create the number of units that will actually make a meaningful dent in California's housing crisis? No, no, no. (laughs) My rebuttal to that would be, we don't know. And certainly like the conditions on the ground have changed a lot. That's right, yeah. I also think it depends on how you wanna judge this. Like, yes, I think ultimately the metric beat should be, is this going to create enough units? But that has to be balanced against political reality. And think about all of the like attention that we devoted to the 2017 housing package. Yeah. To our point, I suppose, I asked Ben Metcalf, the former head of the state housing department, who's now at the UC Berkeley Turner Center for housing innovation. I was like, okay, you know, you've read these bills now. Compare this new suite of legislation to 2017. And he said, I think this is going to be bigger. It'll depend on how they what actually ends up in the final package. Sure. But he said this could have a bigger impact. Yeah, and I think that that's right. But we've been talking about this for what for since twenty sixteen, really in earnest. Plus, you know, we haven't talked much about the the governor here. I mean, putting aside whether you believe that the market is going to make it so that a, a, any realistic chance of getting to his housing production goal, no matter what he did, uh, if you remove zoning from the entire state, would even be possible right now. But I think it's still incumbent, uh, up given the promises that he's made for him to put forward something that matches the extent of the problem and those promises. And again, while this is more ambitious than you know what we've seen in the past, I don't think this is it. 
So I think it's still on him to try to do something that would be bigger. So to that point, pro tem Atkins, I did ask her, have you had conversations with the Newsom administration on this? And, you know, do they support it? And she said that they had briefed the staff on it and that they were aware. And she was looking forward to Newsom publicly supporting the suite of legislation. But he obviously hasn't yet. And also, you know, a key thing missing from this that was there in 2017 was let's talk about this money. And I think particularly those who are on the, the left looking for ways to try to solve the state's housing problems through a more investment in affordable housing or social housing or all those sorts of things. There's really not much in here for them at all. And even if you believe that an approach that tries to rely on the market, even if you kind of siphon some of what developers are making by forcing them to build more low-income units, you, you know, you still are going to not have enough development there to take care of those who are the neediest. Yes. And the practical counter argument to that is, Liam, where would you like to have that money come from? You want to take it out of Medi-Cal? Because there's no money. I know. So. I, you know, I get it. And I think that's the point with the budget, too. It's just yes. the money's not there. Although, you know, I mean, you know, there was a bill that failed that aimed to remove the California's version of the mortgage interest deduction for second homes. And that would have dedicated about $250 million a year or roughly or so to uh, homeless housing. You could also further restrict that in line with what the federal government has already done yes. for primary homes, which would add even a lot more money. And that bill didn't even make it out of a committee. And so, yeah, I think there is challenges to raising taxes at any time, uh, particularly during an economic downturn. But there are ways to raise money without having to rely on an estranged general fund budget. And, and that's not been something that lawmakers seem to want to do. That's definitely true. I, I will say there are still proposals for significant low-income housing funding that are in the legislature. But unlike that bill you referenced, they do not have a new revenue source where they try to close some type of tax loophole or put a new tax on something else. Yeah. So they are in the billions. They are what low-income housing advocates want. And so the equation for legislators will be, okay, if we go ahead and we do approve $2 billion a year for low-income housing, where are we going to get that $2 billion from? What, what are we going to have to cut? And again, just to remind people how dire things are, I mean, you have the largest school district in the state saying, yes. hey, we can't even open in the fall unless you not only restore the funding you're planning to cut from us, but give us more. Yes. That's the kind of level of direness we're talking here in terms of the regular budget. I think it's fair to say that stuff the pandemic took off the table from a major housing package, funding for low-income housing is the biggest loss. On that note, too... Funding for cities is also kind of a casualty here. Something to sweeten the pot for them if they are going to accept not being able to have so much control over housing at the local level. Some type of funding source for them specifically was often talked about as like a political carrot. That seems to be off the table here too because of what the pandemic did to the budget. And lastly, impact fees. The sexiest topic of all. Yes, but keep going. Yes, tell me more. In February, I stood outside the Capitol with a bunch of Democratic Assembly, Assembly members in hard hats And they were talking about how we need to bring down the fees that local governments charge developments. These fees can be exorbitant. Sometimes critics allege that they can be used as simply a disincentive to development as opposed to what cities actually need to pay for things like parks and schools and infrastructure. There was a bunch of bills that intended to do just that. 
those are all dead. Yep. Because the legislature basically said, hey, look, we know cities are desperate for any type of revenue right now. We don't want to take away impact fees this year. So that's something that I would have bet that that would have made it into some type of broader housing package this year if it wasn't for the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I guess the next logical question is, well, Atkins supported SB 50 and that didn't get through. Right. Is this stuff actually going to pass? So, I mean, I have some thoughts, but for you, you have now more of a remote perch on this. What's your general take? I hate to be the guy who's just kind of sitting around and not knowing stuff and saying things. So I'll, I'll try to keep my comments brief. But I think you're still there are open questions about what the governor wants and how much attention is being displayed and taken from him about the budget and the and the pandemic in front of him generally, right? So maybe yeah. maybe this is punted until the fall and, and that may remove some momentum from this because you can uh, oftentimes can get some big policy things through the budget if you try to do it. And number two, you know, a lot of the bills that we just talked about that failed, failed in, over in the assembly and there doesn't appear to be certainly not as much of a coordinated response over there. And so it's unclear. And, you know, given that it's housing and everyone cares about it, you'd think that they'd want something they can brand themselves. And so I don't know where it goes from here, but I would not be surprised to see some sort of counter addition from those on the assembly side. I will say this uh, stand a much better chance of actually passing the Senate. That I will say, because oh, yeah. the entire point of this package was compromised legislation that senators who voted against SB 50 would sign off on. And so this isn't just Atkins and Wiener against the world. This is something that people who aren't fans of greater density, I've said, okay, yeah, we'll we'll go along with this. So th that is an easier hill to climb. But you're exactly right. Anything can happen in the assembly. There's a lot of moderate suburban lawmakers there who won't like some of these provisions. And then the big question is, does the governor choose to come out and publicly support it? And how hard will he knock on heads to get something through? Because he has a ready-made excuse if he doesn't want to do it. It's, hey- right. Right. There's a global pandemic. Let's just punt it till next year. Now, yeah. the administration has continued to say that housing and homelessness are a priority for them. It would be surprising to me if they completely distance themselves, but not shocking, I guess. Right. The other end game here, as you mentioned, is despite what failed, there are notable housing bills still alive in the assembly. That could be put into a broader housing package that includes elements of what's in the assembly and then elements of what's in the Senate, another possible outcome. All right. All right. Anything else on this you want to hit? Uh, we probably should have mentioned the top. We don't have, we don't have a guest. We tried. We tried to get a guest. Yes. It, it's been a busy week in the Capitol. So. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at M11Reports. And me, uh, Liam Dillon, at Dylan Liam on Twitter. And remember, that's the handle to use when you want to show us that you're subscribing and donating. So please do that. Yes, or just email us. That's also okay. And we'll be back in two weeks.